Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 122. This is an excerpt or a series of excerpts from an Instagram Live that I did last week. Now, I know what I was supposed to put up this week. Uh, it was this interview we did with the Preventative Medicine Podcast folks uh, while we were in Chicago. Uh, ran into some slight audio issues. Um, some of their gear wasn't working quite as uh, well as we had liked. So we're going to try to repurpose that into some Instagram TV stuff and maybe get up on YouTube. Uh, going to just keep editing that and try to make it nice. In any case, I actually really liked this Instagram Live and uh, hopefully you do too. Speaking of which, every Wednesday, 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, why don't you come over to my, my Instagram page? It's Jordan underscore Barbell Medicine. And uh, you guys can ask me questions live in the flesh. Well, over the internet. You know what I mean. In other news, um, you guys probably saw on the news that uh, California is uh, entering like this stay-at-home, shelter-in-place sort of uh, phase again, and that affects me. And uh, unfortunately, my powerlifting meet was canceled. People kept asking, "Hey, how's your meet going? How's training for your meet going?" Which was, you know, that's cool. The people are interested, but it's got it got canceled. So this is the third meet of 2020 that I got ready for, and ultimately was canceled. Which I understand these problems are, you know relatively small in the grand scheme of things, but uh, kind of frustrating. So hopefully the landscape looks a little bit different in 2021, get ready for a meet then and uh, do it all over again. So now I'm actually running the hypertrophy two template just to, I want to keep training, but you know, have a little bit different emphasis uh, uh, on the lifts and uh, give myself a little break. So that's what I'll be doing through the end of the year. And then uh, we'll see what 2021 holds. Also, Austin and I have been feverishly working on the nutrition book. Uh, it's coming along very well. Uh, ideally, we wanted to release this on uh, Black Friday or Cyber Monday, but honestly, it, the project is just a little bit bigger than uh, we'd anticipated as far as editing and formatting and, and stuff like that. So it'll be it'll be ready uh, it, during this month at some point. Um, just want to make sure that it is up to our standards before we release it. And uh, yeah, so something to look forward to. So there's you know, effectively practical guidelines, scientific reviews, it's all melded together into one um, source so uh, you can get your nutrition on. And uh, yeah, that's about it. So let's hop into uh, this podcast for this week. We'll see you next Monday right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast Station. Instagram Live, what's going on? It's Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum with Barbell Medicine. It is December 2nd. 2020, it's uh, just a little after 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time when we always do an Instagram Live question and answer. So if you're new to the game, hey, welcome. Uh, what I'm going to ask you to do is to write a question in the comment section. And if you're coming back, if you're OG, welcome back. We do these every Wednesday, so make sure to add that to your weekly schedule. But I'm so glad that you joined me tonight. Um, this is an Ask Me Anything. Let's scroll up and get some questions. If someone has bad ankle mobility for the squat, even with squat shoes, would you have them work on mobility or get them to add a heel to their weightlifting shoes? So I guess you'd have to de define like what you mean by bad ankle mobility. I, to be fair, I've taught thousands of people how to squat and never have I, literally never have I ran into, wow, your ankle mobility is so bad that you can't actually squat. Um, now, if I keep coaching folks long enough, I'm going to run into somebody who's had an ankle procedure, um, potentially some sort of fusion or other sort of uh, congenital issue that 
really, you know, their ankle mobility does limit them and actually squatting bilaterally at the same time to below parallel. Um, in that case, I would address it as needed, um, depending on the actual limitation. For folks who feel like they're missing a bunch of dorsiflexion or plantar flexion or whatever, weightlifting shoes can help. We discussed this on the last Instagram Live because the healed uh, surface actually changes the plane by which the ankle joint um, is on. So it doesn't add, you know, dorsiflexion or plantar flexion. Um, it really just changes the angle of the dangle, if if you will. Um, if somebody still can't achieve uh, the depth that they're looking for in the squat, even after adding shoes, um, then a lot of this is just gradual exposure. So I don't think any, you know, static stretching or otherwise general stretching of the ankle joint or the musculature around the ankle is really going to help you squat any better, but rather gradual exposure to progressively lower and lower depths and uh, potentially greater and greater mobility requirements in the squat would probably be how I, you know, went after this. So it would be very unusual for you not to be able to high bar or low bar squat to below parallel right now. Um, provided no other musculoskeletal issue or neurological disorder that's preventing you from, you know, controlling your body through space. Uh, if you're very, very detrained, maybe you can't use a bar, but you could probably do a goblet squat. If you can't do that, maybe you could do a uh, body weight squat. If you can't do that, maybe you could do an assisted squat. Um, if you can't do that, then, you know, we put you on a leg press or a higher box squat, so reduced range of motion, something like that. Just trying to find a way for you to, you know, simultaneously flex and extend your hip and knee joints <laughs> uh, while standing on, uh, standing, uh, uh, on both feet, something like that. How, how, that's how, how you would reduce the squat down to like its bare sort of functions. Um, I just wouldn't focus on the ankle mobility piece because I just, I just don't see it. I know a lot of people like talk about it, like this is the thing. Um, but in reality, I think it's just an unfamiliarity with specific movements or not spending enough time in those particular movements, given their either other activities, their anatomy, their, you know, previous injury history, um, all sorts of stuff. And so again, I don't think any generalized stretching is probably indicated here because stretching like strength is specific to the range of motion that you're using to the velocity, to the muscles involved, to the positions, etc. So any non squat type stretching is probably not going to help your squat or at least have less carryover than just doing more squats or more exposure to the squat. So that's kind of how I think about that. Can a beginner expect decent hypertrophy gains from the barbell medicine beginner prescription? Yes. That being said, a person new to training can expect reasonable increases in lean body mass from nearly any resistance training program, um, provided that their the volume is sufficient to drive a hypertrophy response and the proximity to failure is even in the, the ballpark uh, uh, that we see um, in, in the exercise science literature. So that's anywhere like, you know, six repetitions uh, in reserve or less. How much better can I expect my workouts to be in barbell medicine apparel? Well, my motto has always been look good, feel good, lift well. You know, and so if you're, if you're the most stylish person in the gym, particularly with something like, you know, this t-shirt where people are going to be curious about what it means, but also, you know, impressed by how clean this shirt actually is, the lines of it, the aesthetic, you know, they, I feel like that's going to give you a little bit extra edge when you're completing your session. How important is gut health? So gut health is not a thing because you cannot reliably measure it in any sort of way that is meaningful. 
what I'm getting at is that you couldn't define what gut health is and then measure it. So then what are we actually talking about here? Uh, We know that various components of the gut, specifically related to the gut microbiome, are important to health. We don't really know how to manipulate them in a way that reliably produces improved health outcomes outside of things we already knew, like exercise, consuming a health-promoting dietary pattern, which would include hitting the appropriate amount of calories, uh, eating the correct amount of protein, eating a lot of dietary fiber, particularly from fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, and you know, keeping saturated fat to um, you know, certainly under 20% and probably closer to that 10% uh, mark for total daily energy intake. Also reducing body fat to the appropriate amount, um, not smoking, things of that nature. So then it's kind of like, yeah, this, this is interesting, but what does it actually mean? So some of the most interesting stuff that, that I've seen that's come out has to do with uh, C. diff patients and, and the fecal transplant stuff. Um, I thought that's been really interesting to see how, how that's actually kind of gone from the lab bench to the bedside, how that translational medicine has worked. Um, and I, I imagine we're going to learn a whole lot more about the gut as we, as we go on. Um, so that being said, you can't measure your gut health. There's no test, certainly not one that gets mailed to your door. That's going to tell you anything reliable about your gut and any sort of actionable things to do secondary to that test. Um, other than things you already knew what, you know, that you were supposed to be doing. How much of your training consists of the main barbell movements? Uh, so if we are going to talk about the main barbell movements as being like a squat pattern, a press pattern, whether that's overhead press or bench press, a deadlift pattern, then I would say 80-ish percent of my training is, you know, related to the main barbell movements and the other 20 percent um, is either some sort of unilateral work that I don't think really would be considered a main barbell movement. So, for example, like a split squat or like a landmine press or, you know, lever row or something like that, or I'm using a machine, which is not a barbell movement at all. Just about to finish the bridge, going to do power building after. Any advice on making the transition? There's no advice needed. All of our templates, free uh, and otherwise, on our website start out with a like introductory low stress week. And so you could just roll right through to the next template and there's nothing you need to do other than just do the training. Um, I do think that people, when they're running these templates, I I think they're a great resource for folks, you know, and not just our templates, but you know, any intelligently programmed template out there can be useful for folks who are really trying to, you know, drill down on and decide like, what do I do in the gym? But I, I think something that should be going through the back of your mind when you're doing a template is like, does this template fulfill my, my preferences about training? And, and and you're kind of exploring like, yes, I like these elements in general, and I don't maybe like these elements. And then, but why? And And not necessarily changing the program in the middle, not necessarily like coming up with this laundry list of things you would do differently, but sort of this exploratory you know, self-discovery of like what you like about training, what things you don't necessarily like, and then kind of try to figure out like, do I not like these things just because I'm not good at them? Or do I not like them um, because I haven't had enough exposure to them or something like that? And the idea is like, you, it helps in the future deciding not only what other templates should you do, but also should you ever hire a coach or decide to do this on your own, Um, gives you a little bit more 
some of that legwork's already been done to kind of figure out like what do next, how to stay motivated. I don't really like this question because it, it sort of implicates, you know, things like physical activity adherence, uh, dietary change adherence, or any sort of other sort of lifestyle change adherence is like a failure on the person because they just weren't motivated enough. And, and I think when, when, adherence sort of wanes it's it's not really like you just gotta you know try harder more motivation i I certainly think leveraging motivation can be useful um to get people to engage like especially initiate a behavioral change um and certainly sort of pulling on those on those strings a little bit can kind of boost morale but but i think ultimately when these when adherence starts to slip or when a intervention you know doesn't work we should, instead of trying to focus on like how to boost motivation, we should kind of focus on like, what are the elements of the change that were causing, uh, creating an obstacle, if any, or what sort of other extraneous, uh, issues in someone's life were causing, um, uh, an obstacle or barrier to adherence rather than just searching for motivation. Cause you're not always going to be motivated all the time to do the thing, but ideally you'll like what you're doing you have knowledge of why you're supposed to be doing that, why it works and, and your sort of role as a, you know, person with a high level of self-efficacy who is taking uh, control of their own sort of <laughs> trajectory as it pertains to diet, as it pertains to the physical activity, as it pertains to their overall health. And, and so, you know, those sort of uh, things can like help you continue to adhere, but it's not just like I'm super motivated today because you're never, going to be motivated all the time. I actually don't know if that's proper English. You're never going to be motivated all the time. I feel like I'm missing something. You're never going to be highly motivated all the time. I'm going to have to get better at words. <laughs> Thoughts on intermittent fasting on athletic performance. Um, in general, dietary inputs for athletic performance tend to be very specific to the individual and their preferences um, with respect to like what food should they be consuming um, and like dietary pattern from a meal frequency standpoint. So six meals versus three meals, intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding versus a more conventional approach. That all being said, intermittent fasting does not have any good evidence suggesting that it improves performance. Um, in fact, only evidence showing that it may reduce performance, particularly if you're exercising fasted or training fasted. Um, definitely doesn't improve like muscle hypertrophy outcomes and lean body mass gain definitely doesn't have any real input on strength other, other than it can reduce acute performance. If you're fasted, um, if it helps you adhere to a health promoting dietary pattern, otherwise like cool, but intermittent fasting is just another way to kind of alter the, uh, meal frequency or free, uh, feeding frequency to, uh, improve adherence. As a climber, strength to weight ratio is always talked about. Is that something you should really be worried about if you're training strength and are averaging weight? I'm not sure that I understand the question about training strength and averaging weight, but strength to weight ratio is important in many sports, particularly weight restricted sports, weight class sports and climbing, obviously, and other sports where um, particular body types and sizes are preferred. Uh, if, uh, that being said, like, I don't know that we should have this very tight connection between training for strength and increases in muscle and increases in body weight. I, I, I think that they're related 
insofar as most programs designed to get you stronger are also designed to make you bigger. So they make you stronger and bigger. But I don't know that they're, you know, linearly correlated. I mean, it's been handed down, you know, since the 80s from everybody who's taken an exercise physiology class that increased in muscle cross-sectional area increases the muscular force production potential. But that's not really supported by the evidence at present. It doesn't mean it's not true. It just the evidence we have that like came, that support is supporting that theory is uh, does does not actually support that theory. So I think if I was training a climber, for example, I don't know that I would ask them to gain body weight. It would really depend on where they're starting. And if they're very competitive and they've already sort of achieved you know some level of of proficiency there, it would be really difficult to 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 ask them to gain weight because I don't think it's going to help them. I can make them much stronger without gaining weight. And I know that the body weight, uh, the strength to weight ratio is very important. So if anything, I would have them try to reduce body fat if they had some extra to lose um, and then increase strength simultaneously. That would be the move. Is there anything that can be done to make a back tweak heal faster? Oh, tons of things that can be done to speed up the recovery from injuries. Um, we start with education. So knowing about pain, what it means, what it doesn't mean, like hurt doesn't mean harm. Um, for example, not catastrophizing your pain, not focusing on it too much, having a uh, empowered viewpoint where you are in control of like your, your, you know, sort of recovery rather than this thing is all consuming and you're helpless and it just has to run its course, et cetera. Um, and physical activity tends to help reduce uh, the duration of pain symptoms. Um, yeah, I mean, we've talked about this ad nauseum, so would refer you to the pain and training would do article and you can spider web from there to the rest of our resources. What are you currently reading for leisure? Oh, I have been, you know, waist deep in nutritional science literature for about the past month and a half. I have not been reading anything for leisure. Um, so so far, this bibliography is nearing 200 citations for this nutrition guide. So unfortunately, I have not had any free time to be like, oh, I should read this book for fun. Yeah. Any tips for stretching and tending to a tight psoas? Well, interesting question, Lauren. Um, first, I would wonder how we're actually classifying a psoas as being tight. Because that's not something that I think has high, any high degree of <laughs> diagnostic validity, meaning that I don't think you can diagnose somebody with a tight psoas and it mean anything. Second, I'd want to know why we're trying to stretch it. If there are certain positions, movements, etc., that are causing pain and need to be, we need to desensitize the person from, that's one thing. If we feel like it's going to improve movement patterns in a particular exercise, that's another thing. Um, so for the former desensitizing folks, I don't know that stretching would be my go-to rather I would try to pick movements that sort of work that area. In this case, the hips through a range of motion and desensitize the person to movement. Um, uh, I wouldn't just stretch them because stretching them is not going to reduce pain insofar as it's actually doing anything mechanistically at the level of the muscle. All it's doing is desensitizing the person by showing them like, oh, like you can move this joint um, and these muscles through a range of motion. I would do that with an actual exercise and not a stretch though. Um, 
particularly if I can actually get the person in the gym and have them follow some sort of exercise program because I think increasing physical activity would be the goal and yada, yada, yada. For exercise performance, like increasing range of motion in something, again, I think the stretching needs to be very specific to what you're doing. And unless you're just trying to get better at a psoas stretch, like the couch stretch or some other sort of thing that you can find on the interwebs, um, I would just do more of that movement in a gra uh, gradually progressed way. But I wouldn't diagnose somebody or tell somebody or otherwise infer that a person has a tight psoas and needs to stretch it. I think people who do that, some clinical sort of remediation needs to be done. Struggling to choose between focusing on sumo and conventional deadlift at the moment. My untrained sumo is as strong, but I'm not a competitive lifter. Do you think conventional has more benefits if not competing? I do not think it matters at all what deadlift variation you choose, provided you're doing some sort of deadlift. I think that the difference in training adaptations induced by any type of deadlift, so sumo deadlift, conventional deadlift, trap bar deadlift, Romanian deadlift, stiff-legged deadlift, Jefferson deadlift, whatever other kind of deadlifts you can conjure up, the main differences for them are going to be specific to the movement meaning that you're going to develop strength at slightly different joint angles and muscle lengths and slightly different uh, improvements in neurological efficiency in those positions to improve strength in the position specific to the exercise. But if we're talking about like hypertrophy stimulus or general strength insofar as one movement transfers to a bunch of other movements, I think they're all about the same. If you're talking about transference to a specific movement, then the more closely related a particular type of deadlift is to that other movement, well, then that calculus changes. But I just think that people arguing over whether conventional or, or sumo deadlifts are better or worse, I feel like they're just missing the forest for the trees. It doesn't matter <laughs> really how you lift or what you lift so long as you're lifting. Hey, Jordan, which is more fatiguing, a variation with a longer range of motion plus less weight or a different variation with a smaller range of motion plus more weight? Yeah, it'd be really difficult to reliably predict how that affects someone's fatigue. I think they'd probably be about the same if I'm guessing. And again, the way this works out is the training stimulus, which is the exercise selection, which is the uh, intensity, volume, rest periods, etc., cetera, um, gets inputted into the individual, the individual through their genetics, their previous training, their expectations, all the individual characteristics make them them. They respond to that training stimulus via a, you know, a bunch of different physiological and psychological changes. That's uh, called the, uh, the way that they respond or the way that we, the measurement of how folks respond, that's called the internal training load. And then that drives fitness adaptations and fatigue, fitness adaptations being positive psychological and physiological changes that occur secondary to activity training, and then fatigue being negative physical, uh, and psychological, um, effects. I don't know that I can predict somebody's response to a particular training stimulus without knowing more about them. And I don't think you can either. So in this, for this particular question, I would imagine they'd be about the same, but the individual will ultimately determine kind of if there's a significant bias towards one being more or less fatiguing than the other. Opinion on static stretching after workouts. I think it's a waste of time. 
I think static stretching or really any sort of non-specific general stretching um, after training is a waste of time because it doesn't reduce soreness, doesn't improve performance, doesn't reduce injury risk. And I feel like even if your goal is to be bendier, like you, you would need to really drill down on like, what exactly do you mean by that? Are we talking about very specific positions? Um, and if so, let's attack those positions, those postures. If we're talking about in general, I feel like that's so wide open that I don't know you could, that you can make a lot of progress in that. I've heard some narrative about flexing your spine too often in movements like crunches can be damaging to the spine long term. Is that complete BS? Yes. I can say unequivocally that that is bullshit. The thing is, your spine, just like the rest of your body, will readily adapt to training and to become more resilient, more robust, and more capable of doing the things that you've been doing. This is provided that we, you know, that the load and the total amount of work that you're doing, I don't mean work in the physics sense, by the way, so don't at me, (laughs) but the total amount of training that you're doing is meted out appropriately. We do not yet know the bounds of human adaptation. I don't, I'm not saying that I think Austin's spine can turn into adamantium, but I'm also not not saying that. Do you recommend a severely overweight individual to run a greater than 1,000 calorie deficit and do strength training at the same time? I don't think that I could, in good faith, recommend a very low calorie diet, which are usually diets, usually refers to diets less than 880 kilocalories per day, uh, to be done in the absence of medical supervision. Um, that being said, if I was the person medically supervising a person on a very low calorie diet, I'd probably have them strength trained for sure. How do you keep progressing on the high bar squat as compared to the low bar squat where it is relatively easier to progress? So I disagree with that whole premise. I do not think that it's easier to progress on the low bar squat compared to the high bar squat. I think they're the same. The one you train more, it's easier to, you know, do. But if you train them both with the same frequency and same volume and same chutzpah, you're going to get similar results. So let's, let's do this thought experiment here. We take two twins. They're exactly identical except for one <laughs> red starting strength, and they're doing the low bar squat. The other one didn't read that book, and they're doing the high bar squat. They both train it do all the same sessions, all the same volume, all the same average intensity, et cetera, for an entire year. Okay. And then at the end, they're going to test their one RM leg press. Who's going to be stronger on the leg press? The answer is you don't know. And I don't know either. We're testing them on something they haven't been training. And we expect roughly the same amount of carryover from the low bar squat to the high bar squat. They're just different exercises, different movements. And to the degree that they're related, they're going to have transference to each other. But, you know, their peccadillos make them a little different, a little nuanced as far as, uh, you know, how they transfer to other movements. Any thoughts on aerobic dance, i.e. Zumba or U-Jam for GPP in the Barbell Medicine templates? Ooh, I don't know what U-Jam is, but I'm curious now. You know, here's funny. Here's a funny thing. Uh, back in college, 
our so our weight room was like really well developed, really well stocked, but except for like cardio stuff. Uh, now, granted, getting me to skip out on cardio was <laughs> is not hard to do. So it was just a bunch of ellipticals and like really old treadmills, and I didn't want to do either of those. And we had a track, which you know in hindsight was cool, but I didn't really want to do any of that stuff. Um, I, it's funny that a lot of my friends and I ended up playing Dance Dance Revolution DDR, <laughs> which is terrible to admit right now. But we did that for cardio. The thing is, I think Zumba and you know DDR and whatever U Jam is. I think a lot of them end up being more anaerobic type stuff than aerobic. Um, you know, obviously it depends on the core structure or whatever. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can't use them for GPP. I think that's just fine. Um, and I think for your average person who's training, you know, uh, for health benefits, that works, that works just fine. I do think that because of the intensity of those sessions, it'd be difficult to do as much cardio as I'd like most folks to do. So I think if you want to do a class or two of Zumba and U-Jam per week, that's fine. But then otherwise, I think you, you need to be doing additional conditioning to meet or exceed the current exercise guidelines for adults. I watched your deadlift warm-up video recently. Do you go straight to the barbell or do you do any cardio mobility uh, before barbell work? The only mobility and stretching or cardio that I do before deadlifting is putting on changing my shoes so do like mr rogers thing you know i sit down and i do a hip uh hip hinge to get down to my shoes and then i do some internal and external rotation with my upper extremities and and then i go deadlift uh, i would like to lose some weight around my waistline but i'm trying to get stronger at the same time is slimming down before trying to slowly build more lean body mass and less flab uh, I guess the question is, is slimming down before trying to build more lean body mass and less flab a good idea? I think that anybody who uh, is at risk or has been confirmed to be carrying too much adipose tissue, which is a fancy way of saying body fat, via their BMI being greater than 35 or a BMI between 23 and 35 with a waist circumference that is above the current cutoff for their uh, sex and ethnicity, those folks should lose weight full stop. You can get stronger as you lose weight. Losing weight will improve your health outcomes long-term. And because you can get stronger whilst losing weight, you're going to be fine. For individuals who are well below the cutoffs for carrying excess adiposity and who have no adiposity-related diseases, those folks can gain weight if they want to. But I don't know that that's going to improve your strength performance. I think it's going to improve your muscle size and likely how much muscle mass that you uh, build. But I don't know that it's going to generate this large strength increase. I think that's still TBD. Uh, and then finally, for folks who are carrying too much adipose tissue, who are losing weight, yes, you can lose body fat and gain muscle at the same time. The same goes for untrained individuals. Thoughts on CrossFit or functional bodybuilding? First off, people meeting the physical activity guidelines, if they want to do CrossFit or functional bodybuilding, great. That's awesome. If we're changing the conversation away from like general health promotion to like elite level performance, then I think both of those things are ill-advised. Even for folks who like want to compete 
at the highest level in CrossFit because then you have to define like what is CrossFit, right? Is If CrossFit is like lifting weights in a like well-structured plan, right? Doing, uh, you know, metabolic conditioning workouts that are programmed specifically and like, you know, building all of these skills simultaneously. So, you know, weightlifting, gymnastics, uh, uh, cardiorespiratory endurance, et cetera. Then honestly, like that looks a lot like a lot of strength conditioning programs that don't call it CrossFit. But if CrossFit is all of that stuff, then I don't know what's uniquely CrossFit. In any case, I think there's way more randomization in CrossFit stuff that they think is like magic voodoo than like, you know, what the actual games athletes are doing. But that's for another thing. And then I don't think functional bodybuilding, as far as that actually improving hypertrophy more than a well thought out bodybuilding program, that's just made up marketing gibberish. I I think it ends up being a lot of wasted time doing stuff that doesn't work quite as well as stuff that we've known about for 30, 40 years. The magic isn't in the movements, right? It's the, it, programming is what, you know, and, and how an individual actually responds to that stuff, um, which either takes coach or like, you know, years of self-exploration to find out kind of what your preferences are, what works for you, et cetera, et cetera. But none of those I actually think about regularly from like a, wow, this is tip of the spear kind of stuff. Speed work. What's up with that? Haven't heard barbell medicine talk about it much. Is there evidence for it in strength adaptation? If so, when to include it for programming. Yeah, we talk about this a lot at the programming in the programming section of our seminar. So training high velocity force production by training at high velocities is certainly useful for improving high velocity force production. For sports like powerlifting, which is primarily low velocity force production, it would actually be the opposite of what you'd want to do because you do get some muscle fiber type conversion there from type two uh, A muscle fibers, which are great for low velocity, high force production, but low velocity force production, which is powerlifting basically. Uh, but if you do a bunch of high velocity, uh, training, those shift to type two X fibers, which are again, primarily high velocity force producing muscle, muscle fibers. And so you wouldn't want to do that. Some people advise against intermittent fasting saying it leaves you in a catabolic state. Is this something a novice focused on fat loss should worry about? Well, if you're doing an intermittent fasting to lose weight, you would want the net sum of all of your metabolic reactions in the body with respect to adipose tissue to be catabolic so you lost fat. Um, if you're a novice, it's unlikely that your muscles, the net state of all of the metabolic reactions that take place at the muscle, it's unlikely that for them to be catabolic because you're likely going to build muscle even if you lose weight. I advise against using intermittent fasting because I don't think that there's any advantage to it outside of adherence preferences. If it is your preference, that's fine. But I don't think that you should go into that thinking that there's any advantage to it because I, I don't think that there is. I don't know that there are any disadvantages to it um, unless you're training fasted, in which case clear that would be a clear disadvantage from a performance standpoint, potentially from a training adaptation standpoint. You might get better training adaptations from energy production uh, while you're in the fasted state, which could be useful for performance under fasted situations, but to the degree that actually matters, depends on your sport, your activities, et cetera. So for example, if you were an endurance athlete doing like really long endurance efforts, you know, some of the time that you're actually going to be either competing, uh, or otherwise needing to like continue a particular, uh, uh, you know, pace, you're going to be fasted. You're not going to be fed the whole time. 
And so generating some of these, those training adaptations um, under fasted situations can be useful. Would you rather fight 100 duck-sized Barakis or one Baraki-sized duck? If I can stipulate that this one Baraki-sized duck is the size of Baraki when he started medical school of like 140 pounds, that's the duck that I want to fight. I mean, I understand like they're probably aggressive and they got, you know, they can fly a little bit. Uh, <laughs> that's fine. Come at me, bro. But 100, 100 little Barakis, dude, that guy's crafty. He's smart. I mean, he, you know, he squats a lot, so probably has some, some, you know, fighting skills. I don't want that. What's the biggest mistake people make when training for hypertrophy? Uh, probably for new folks is, man, it just depends. Cause I feel like, I feel like now I'm so biased because of the, the, the people who end up coming to us, um, and like w interacting with us. I think for those folks, it's probably not doing enough training. I mean, it's not doing enough training and like not keeping it the same for long enough to like adapt to the fatigue induced from that level of training and then being able to realize the hypertrophy gains on the backside of that. So like, you know, they do the same thing for three weeks and then eh, I'm bored of it and they switch programs. Uh, it's like you should have really ran that thing for like six to eight weeks because the growth is going to happen on the second half of that for the most part. Um, so not doing enough and then giving itself the themselves long enough time to adapt to it. So overall volume being low. Again, I think that's the folks that end up following us um, out in the world. Man, I don't even know what people are doing. I honestly don't because I don't see them. I don't go to commercial gyms. I think in, in general, people, the, their volume isn't high enough um, for the most part. And they train um, very, very close to failure, which pre prevents them from doing enough volume. And their training frequency is probably not, not high enough for the volume that they actually need. Something like that. I don't know if those are the biggest ones, but those are the things I think about when I think about these are the errors that people are making. What considerations or recommendations for continued success would you have for someone who's lost about 150 pounds, kept it off for two years, struggling to lose more? Uh, it just depends. Um, obviously, there's no secret here. It continue, uh, calorie deficits, the, the play. So what is preventing the person? I'd ask the person what's preventing them from engaging in weight loss behaviors like they've done before and drill down on like how I could best support them. So it's not just giving somebody information, education, whatever. It's trying to figure out like what's preventing them from doing it. How do I empower them? How do I give them the skills, resources, tools to succeed, improve self their self-efficacy so that they can manage this? Because I can't be there, you know, every every minute of the day, right? And they, they don't want, they, they don't need that for me either. Obviously they've had a bunch of success. So how do you improve this? How do you like facilitate them taking the next step? It's trying to figure out, well, what's the holdup right now? How closely to the barbell medicine training templates um, do they, how closely do the barbell medicine training templates mimic your own programming? Similar. Yeah, I'm actually using a hypertrophy template right now because my meat got canceled and I needed something to do. All right, y'all, I've been here for 58 minutes. That means some of you have too. So thank you so much for tuning in to the Barbell Medicine Instagram Live. Again, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We'll see you next Wednesday, 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Tell your friends. See you guys next week. All right, that's a wrap on this week's episode. And you know, I was thinking, every time I introduce our podcast, I'm, I say something like, hey, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. But you know, it feels like a little, it feels a little vanilla. So I was thinking, why don't we call it Barbell Medicine Radio? You know, let, let's try it this time. 
Thanks for tuning in to Barbell Medicine Radio, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. You can catch us here and wherever you get your podcast from every Monday with the latest nuance in health and fitness for your brain hole. You know, I, I kind of like that. I kind of like that. Maybe maybe we'll switch. Uh, so in any case, yep, we'll see you next Monday. We have a new episode from the pain and rehab team on exercise prescription in pain and rehab settings. And uh, yeah, hope to see you there and hope to see you Wednesday at my Instagram live at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on my personal page, Jordan underscore Barbell Medicine. See you guys next week. Mm-hmm.